Hello authors, I'm Joanne Morell, children's and young adult fiction writer and author of Short Nonfiction for Authors. Thanks for joining me for the Hybrid Author Podcast, sharing interviews from industry professionals to help you forge a career as a hybrid author, both independently and traditionally publishing your books. You can get the show notes for each episode and sign up for your free author pass over at the Hybrid Author website to discover your writing process, get tips on how to publish productively and get comfortable promoting your books at www.hybridauthor.com.au. Let's crack on with the episode. Hello, authors. I hope you're all keeping well in whatever part of the world you reside and listen to the podcast in. Today's episode is with adult and children's author Michelle Ellie Royce on Going Hybrid. After being traditionally published for the first lot of her books, Michelle shares with us why she's taken the plunge with her new junior fiction series and started publishing her own work and shares tips to authors looking to take the plunge into having a hybrid author career but are still teetering on the edge. So in my author adventure this past week, I've been writing up a storm in my junior fiction series, but I don't want to go into too much detail here. I just wanted to let you know that I am and I have been busy writing and I've really been enjoying the process, which will say a lot about the series, I hope, and more to come on this in the coming weeks. So book week is fast approaching here in Australia and I'll be attending the Children's Book Council of Australia CBCA Book Week opening dinner, which is next Friday. I generally have been attending that for the last four or five years, and it's a really great night, and I'm really looking forward to catching up with the book community, enjoying a lovely meal, and generally just having gay old time with friends in the industry. I just need to get my costume sorted out. And I'm also very excited to find out which books are going to win this year for the the CBCA and the categories because I went to the judges talk and I've been slowly making my way through the list reading the books and they're really fantastic so So if you love the podcast or any of the episodes has helped you further in your author career, you can now pay it forward by buying me a coffee over at www.buymeacoffee.com slash the hybrid author. Capital T, cap all cats hybrid and capital A for author. So the links for, for that can be found in the show notes and at the top of my social media pages. So hopefully by me adding this link in these areas, you can simply click on it and go to the page to let me know. Or you can leave me a review, pay it forward by leaving me a review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on. Nothing big, just a line or two to let me and others who write like you know how the podcast is helping further your author career. Let's all support each other. So that's enough from me. Let's crack on with the episode. Michelle Royce is an internationally published, award-winning author of books for adults and children. As Ellie Royce, Michelle writes quirky and heartfelt middle grade and YA fiction, as well as visionary, unique picture books that spark ideas, empathy, and new ways of looking at the world for readers of all ages. Michelle is also a storyteller, author, speaker, and independent publisher, presenting sessions on storytelling for well-being as an arts and health advocate and practitioner for small groups, as well as speaking at conferences. Incredible bio, Michelle. Welcome to the Hybrid Author Podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. I can't believe it's happening. I've oh. listened to so many fabulous episodes and now here I am speaking on one. It's amazing. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. And we're so <laughs> glad to have you. You've achieved so much. Uh, where did you get your start into writing and publishing? Well, it sounds fabulous when you read it through in a bio. When you consider that I'm you know, a lot older than a lot of other people, I guess, in the industry, I guess that's where I've been able to put a bit of experience together. So like a lot of other people with their start, I'm a book nerd. I've always loved books and stories ever since I was a little kid reading Enid Blyton, Secret Seven and Famous Five under the stairs in my house, (laughs) which is now, you know, very famous for a lot of other reasons under the cupboard under the stairs. But we had one of those and that was my little cubby and I'd go in there with my books and my didn't have ginger beer, but I'd get my cordial and my book and my apple and go and sit under the stairs and read Secret Seven, Famous Five and all the Enid Blyton books when I was a little kid. And actually it goes back even further than that, really, because my great grandmother, Lucy Jane Moore, was also a lover of books and stories. And she used to write over 100 years ago now, used to write children's stories for her newspaper and it was published in the Uncle Remus section. This was in Adelaide many, many years ago. And she uh, she had eight kids and she still found time to run a corner shop. And in the corner shop, she had one of the first public lending libraries in South Australia because she loved books so much that she wanted them to be part of her life. So somehow she managed to squeeze that in, juggling eight kids and a business and looking after her family. And my mum has actually also written children's fiction as well. So yeah, it sort of runs in the family. I think wow. I couldn't have avoided it. Perhaps stories <laughs> running our blood somehow or other. That's an incredible story in itself. I love that. What, what a picturesque, you know, vision to think of yourself under the stairs. Enid Blight and, and obviously Secret Seven seems to be a, a definitely as a, a point for all a lot of guests I've had on that's that's you know they've loved that sort of story but yeah it sounds like it's in yeah. your blood <laughs> yeah that's right so I mean I mean books and storytelling has always been part of my life and as I often say nowadays I got myself into trouble storytelling to the detriment of, of myself when I was younger because I didn't know how to use the power for good instead of evil and I used to tell a lot of stories that either people would believe when they weren't supposed to or they didn't believe when they were supposed to so yeah got sent to the corner for telling my grandmother that I'd flown around the world on a broom and getting very upset that she didn't believe me and then in year three telling all my friends I was actually a spy who in the school holidays went off and solved mysteries and things like that which was just meant to be for fun and they did believe me and got quite cross when they found out that it was just a story <laughs> so it took me a little while to get my act together and, and start learning how to frame stories in in the right way so that people could appreciate them but yeah they've always been there somewhere in the background so it was inevitable that I would eventually try and get something published and I think I I sort of went off fiction and maybe even for that reason, I went off fiction for a while. I did a lot of freelance writing of features articles when I was in my 20s and 30s. And then I had two small children and moved to the country. So I did that, still did that a bit sporadically. And then as my daughters grew up, same story as a lot of people seem to have, rediscovered my love of fiction and started volunteering in their school library. And that was a great excuse to hang out and read all the kids' books. And yeah, that just rekindled my love of children's fiction. And I started writing 
writing again, writing fiction, which was wonderful because there's so much less research that you have to do in fiction. I actually had a non-fiction book published before that. So my first book that was ever published was a non-fiction book, 365 pages of women's well-being, more or less. And that required a lot of research and a lot of bibliography and all of that sort of stuff. So when I started doing fiction, it was just like, wow, this is great. <laughs> the freedom, I can do anything. I can make anything up, any world I want, any thing at all so it was aimed at the ages that my daughters were so they were at the time about eight and seven and nine so the first books that I had published were um, middle grade novels in 2008 called the letter books and they were published with ABC Books as they were at the time. Now they're an imprint of HarperCollins. And, yeah, they were just books about girls, girls at school, what happens, real life. They're still around today in libraries. Then the kids grew up. We moved. We built a few houses. I got really busy. Didn't write for a while. Started working full time. It wasn't until 2013 that I started writing picture book form and fell in love with it and discovered that it was actually the most fiendishly difficult thing to do well. And I love a challenge. Like another one of your guests recently said, I'm a bit of a stubborn person. So I just sort of whacked away at it. And and it was like Tetris, you know, you get a bit here, you get a bit there, you learn a bit here, you learn a bit there, did some courses. So it took me a while, but eventually I got a picture book text together and sent it to my agent and and that was published that was my first picture book Lucas and Jack in 2014 which was inspired by the work my, my day work my day job which is working with older people and their story Fantastic. so that was that was a great project to work on yeah well it sounds yeah. like you've had an adventurous start into the industry for sure that's incredible and I have also heard that although picture books are smaller form they don't be fooled they are extremely because you've got so little space to work with it's you know got to be perfect and it's harder than say yeah. a longer book yeah yeah they say <laughs> every word has to work really mm. hard for, for its space in, in the manuscript and it took me a long time to understand the synergy between the text and the illustration because when you first start you do a lot of writing a description and then you realize that you just have to chop it back chop it back chop it back in the end that becomes quite addictive and sometimes you chop it back so much it makes no sense whatsoever (laughs) anyone but then you have to put it back put it back put it back a little bit as well so it's a bit of a fine line between taking out and leaving enough in so that it makes sense and conveys what you're trying to. That's amazing. Pedaling back about you've obviously, you know, done lots of different forms of writing and, you know, find yourself in the picture book format as well for middle grade. So finding your agent, where was that about? Was that before, was that the first book that you put out for the nonfiction that you got picked up by an agent or did that? No, that was that came about through my freelance writing. Right. And then when I started writing the fiction, I've actually also been working on a YA novel for many, many years that's been put away and pulled out put away and pulled out and I actually made an inquiry with my agent about that one and he liked it and took me on for that particular book and then I sent through I sort of put that aside and and wrote the other ones the novels and sent those through so that's kind of how that came about I believe that I was contacting a publisher in the first instance about those books and the agent and the publisher knew each other so it was sort of a bit of a another kind of a synergy where they came together and then he agreed to represent my books after I think 
there's different kinds of agents. And I mean, some of them represent the author as a brand. But when we were talking, he said, you know, I'll take your books and like one at a time, you know, there was no pressure on me to sort of churn things out and keep up, which was lucky because there was a big gap between one and another. (laughs) (laughs) So same agent for... The picture books as well. Did they? Did the agent stay well, on there? The, the middle picture book was that actually. So I've had three books. I had Lucas and Jack was the first one in 2014. Auntie Uncle Drag Queen Hero was book number two, and that was published in New York. And I was working with another agent in the States at the time who got that one through. And at the same time as I wrote that, I wrote another text called Frizzle and Me, which was actually contracted through my Australian agent to an Australian publisher. But then at some point, the Australian publisher went through like a a reconstruction or the, the text was uncontracted which was a bit upsetting at the time because I didn't know that such a thing could happen and I know that at that time a lot of other people sort of went through the same thing and it was interesting but then my agent got the book recontracted so while I wrote the two texts at the same time and they are sort of focusing on diversity, inclusion. They're a bit different because they had what we call rainbow families, so families outside what people consider to be the the normal family unit of two parents and and however many children. Auntie-uncle is actually focusing on a a drag queen who is also someone's uncle, which is the case in many instances. I love that. Um, I I haven't seen anything like that out there. How did that come about, that picture? (laughs) Well, I just wanted to do something a bit different. And I'm I'm really all about what I like is incidental representation is what the fancy name for it is, which just means that in Kidlit, we want to see everything that's possible. We We want everyone to be able to see themselves in children's literature. So you know, there there are plenty of kids who have LGBTQIA plus members of their families. There are plenty of kids who, who actually do have someone in their family who might do drag. And this particular person who inspired this story is someone that I worked with. He was of Spanish ethnic background <laughs> and he had, I think it was 12 nephews and nieces. And then when he discovered his passion for drag, he was telling me about it one day and I thought the story was going to be Oh, and they all hated me and they didn't want me to do it and, you know, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. But instead the story was, oh, they love it. You know, they love it when I get dressed up and they love it. They love come and play with the hairbrushes and we sing into the hairbrushes and we dance together and, you know, uh, and I just thought that's beautiful because... So much of our children's literature is about the challenge and about the overcoming of the obstacles. And I'm not saying that they're not there. I know they are. But I really wanted to show the other side as well, where there is love and acceptance and respect. Yeah. And people just love each other for who they are. And so the story itself, while it's called Auntie Uncle Drag Queen Hero, and it's about about this person, it's actually not about them trying to get acceptance from their family or feeling left out. They're actually really loved, accepted and supported by their family and it's it's totally something else that happens. Yeah, and I wrote that and I wrote Frizzle and Me, which is another story about a rainbow family and it's about, it, was, it actually came out of a conversation with my daughter. I was telling her about a story idea I had. It was about a mummy and a daddy and she sort of said, oh, hmm, how come there's not mummy and mummy? And I thought, oh, you're right. How come <laughs> it's not mummy and mummy? What a, why 
why am I not thinking? You know, it challenged me to think differently, basically. And that was quite a few years ago now. It was the year before we had the same-sex marriage referendum in Australia. So it was quite a while ago, and I wrote them both at the same time. But Auntie Uncle Drag Queen Hero ended up being published first in America, and then Frizzle and Me was published later. And it was quite funny because Auntie Uncle came out in 2020, right at the very beginning of the pandemic, which meant that I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Um, like a lot of other people have been through as well. The funny thing was that it was one of those, the first of the LGBTQ books. It's actually a challenged book in America now, I'm, I'm a bit proud to say. Yeah, so it was one of the first of, of those ones that came out that I now have now been coming out for the last couple of years. And when Frizzle and Me came out, one of the reviews, which was a lovely review, but it said something about jumping on the bandwagon, you know, very, very needed to very needed to be jumping on this bandwagon. It was a lovely review, but it made me laugh because they were both written at the same time. <laughs> it was just how it worked out that they came out sort of a year apart. So Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds like you've had this amazing, long sort of traditional career so far. Today's topic is about going hybrid. How, how did you find your traditional representation, like, you know, your publishing experience? How did you find that as a whole? Well, I found it. I'm really grateful to traditional publishing and the way I look at it now is having had a, a bit of experience in the industry and understanding the challenge of publishing as it is and as it must be and here and, and going to conferences and talking to other authors and listening to publishers speak and realising that they have a really challenging job to do because they get thousands and thousands and thousands of submissions all the time and the fact that they have only a small amount I mean you know there's two sides to the story there's the side to the story that on one hand you look at it and you realize that only a few stories make it through the gate like there's the gatekeepers there's there's a publishing industry it has the the publisher who may want to publish the book but then when it goes to acquisitions and the marketing team see it, they might say, no, this author isn't new, they're reliable, but they're not new and fresh, or they're not a bestseller. So at the moment, we can't do that because it's not going to move the business forward. So there's that side of things. And then there's the other side of things when you look at it on a di- in a different way, the, that side of things to me is a little bit of a worry because it means that the stories, you know, there, there's that wonderful speech called The Danger of a Single Story. And I have that very much in my mind because we need stories. We need different stories for everybody. Everybody needs to see themselves. Everybody needs to respond and resonate with something different. And if we can't get enough stories out there, enough different stories out there for people, then people are missing out basically, is what I think. So what I would like to see is traditional publishing has become a bit more, especially the big publishers, has become more difficult, more unwieldy, I feel. The independent publishers have more flexibility and more ability to sort of turn around and try new things, which is great. And I've been fortunate to sort of see both sides of of the story with that because my my publisher for Frizzle and Me, well, my publisher for the American publisher, Power Kids, is a small independent publisher. Publisher for Frizzle and Me, Ford Street, are an independent publisher, a smaller publisher, award-winning for sure, but they're definitely a smaller publisher. And I feel like maybe that gives them more room to 
be a bit more diverse in what they take on. So, yeah, so from one perspective, it, I feel like the traditional publishing at the moment, the way things are, it's limiting the things that we can offer mm-hmm. um, our readers. Again, on the other side, there's that pressure on publishers as well. I can imagine what it would be like, having actually gone through it myself now, gone through the process of, of doing a book, you can imagine what it would be like sitting there having thousands and thousands of submissions from hopeful authors that, you know, really, really want to see their story published. And reason why I chose Avery to publish was because that's a story that's gone through an agent. It's gone to a whole lot of publishers. And for one reason or another, they said, oh, we, we love this, but we just signed something very similar and that's that. That's the rigidity of their list as well. Like they have a list. They have one thing, one kind of book that does says one kind of message or tells one kind of story. They can't have five of those because it wouldn't be right for the business. So this book went, you know, did the rounds and came back. And I sort of put it away for a little while, and then I took it out and read it again. Thought, oh, and gave it to a few people to read with kids the right age. And they loved it. They really loved it. And I thought, you know, this is a a good little story. I I think that people would really enjoy it if they had the opportunity to read it. So that's why I thought, and obviously now things are different than they were three or four years ago. Now it's a lot, it's not easy and it's not simple, but it's a lot easier to actually publish something. We have the resources to be able to do independent publishing. So that and a whole lot of other reasons, you know, sort of milling around in my head. And I thought, look, what do I have to lose, really? Yeah. Let's just give it a go and see what happens. And not just write a book, but actually make a book and hold yeah. it in my hand. And my book nerdiness came out and said, oh, <laughs> my God, what if you could actually create a book, Dr. Frankenstein? Yeah. Oh. I it, it's alive. So. <laughs> oh, no, well, that's amazing. And I, and obviously Avery's Hattastic Adventures is your, your junior fiction series. To taking that plunge and, and deciding to go hybrid and put the books out yourself, did you have concerns up front like what were your thoughts about doing this and you know how did you work through them one of the thoughts I had was what are people going to think how is it going to affect how people view me as an author but in the end I thought look I'm as I say I'm getting on in years (laughs) it's one of those things I I sort of thought to myself on my deathbed am I going to care and the answer to that was obviously no. I did go through a stage, which I commented on in your comments for your podcast. I did go through a stage where I had almost got everything ready. I had it prepped and I had it ready. Or actually just before that was when I I got another rejection for for some work that I'd sent to a publisher. And I got, uh, I spoke to a, a publishing expert, I suppose, you know, someone who's in the publishing industry who more or less said to me, you know, your challenge is that you're a mid-list author. And I had sort of got to the stage where I thought, look, I don't know. I don't even know anymore. Maybe I'll just put it all aside and carry on with life and do something else. Quit, basically, which is what a lot of people say. Yeah, I'm quitting. I'm quitting writing books. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. And we do that quite 
quite a lot. We quit and then we get back on the horse and yeah. go back. So I was kind of in that frame of mind when I actually listened to an episode of your podcast. As I said in my comments earlier with um, Sarah Epstein talking about her self-publishing experience and it was so inspirational and just lit my fire again. And I thought, yes, look, flip that around. You're a mid-list author. That can be a challenge or it can be a benefit. Use it as a benefit and see what happens. Yeah. So, and What do you mean by mid-list? Well, what I was told was that a mid-list author, the definition of a mid-list author is someone who doesn't sell millions of books, okay. is quite reliable, but isn't setting the world on fire. And so if a publisher has a choice between someone like that and someone who's got something new and fresh or something record-breaking yeah. or something like that, they're more likely because of what they have to do and they have their business interests and all of that sort of thing, they're more likely to go with that unless it's something absolutely amazing, which, you know, obviously they're always going to go for that. Yeah, it, I, I sort of thought, okay, well, I'll take that. I'll take that and I'll make it a good thing. It is a good um, thing. It's not a bad thing by any means. No, no, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah, I, I was, yeah, first of all, I was sort of like, oh, and then I thought, no, actually, that's a great thing. It's it a is. great thing to be. And, and and I would say too, that I don't think I would have taken the step had I, two things are really important. Number one, I have a really good friend who is a gas illustrator and a professional book designer now we worked on this project together that's why I've done it because I have her support and number two I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't had experience in the publishing industry already and I sort of know the steps that you have to take I haven't taken them myself before all of them except for the author side of things but I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't done that so if if Mm. anyone was considering doing it and they hadn't been around the industry for a while, I'd really advise them to do a lot of research first before you do anything else. Yeah, well, that was, that was going to be my next question, just what, what obviously coming from the traditional side, heading into the self-publishing, because a lot of times it's the other way around or, you know, it's different these days. It, there's lots of things happening, but what are more, some or more of your tips for people, I guess, like yourself, who are sort of oh, thinking about it for various reasons of their own and then wanting to take the plunge, maybe vice versa. So obviously being researched, being clued up on the whole process, I guess, being professional about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And do you- research find out what all the steps are that publishers do whatever the publisher you can do your research on there's also a lot of information out there that I wasn't aware of there there is you know as we know we all sort of get stuck in our own little world and we tend to not necessarily venture out of it but when I did venture out of it I found another whole world of people who were actually doing this and doing quite well and making their whole career independently published not not just self-published, but yes. independently work. And that's what they've done. And they've done it for a really long time. And I thought, my goodness, surprise, there you go. <laughs> it's possible. You know, when you see something is possible, then you realise that it is possible. And, and do it for the right reasons. Don't do it because you're, you're angry and upset. Do it because you really love your story and you've worked hard on it and you've got you've had the support you've had it edited you've done all the right things and you've got it out there and do it because I guess that the really important thing is to do it because I don't and I don't want to sound preachy when I say this but one of the most important things I've learned since I've been writing books is that we do it to to maybe I mean we hope that there's some kind of income involved in it but most of the time we write because we love the story we want to write the story we want to get 
get it out there. And we think it's going to serve someone. We think it's going to touch someone or resonate with someone. We think it's going to make a difference in their day or in their life or we think they're going to smile or laugh or be inspired or, you know. So, I mean, that's why you do it in the end. You don't, yeah, the, the other stuff is kind of a byproduct of the creative process in the first place, I feel. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. That's fantastic. Oh, just so good. How has Avery's Hattastic Adventures been? How have you found the, you know, um, working with the illustrator and putting the book out yourself? And how have you found it all compared to the traditional side? What's been the easiest and the, the best and the worst moments? <laughs> I've loved it it's been like you know as I say my inner book nerd has just come out and gone crazy and just loved learning because I love learning new things anyway and learning about how to make a book is just like the best thing in the world going through the process I mean there were things that I didn't love like trying to get metadata organized so all the information about myself and the illustrator and the book and what themes it fits into I kind of liked it and kind of hated it at the same time but then once it was done it was good I guess it's kind of like I don't know it's not like editing but it's kind of like when you have to write a synopsis or something that there's something inside your chest just goes oh I don't really want to do this but okay I'll do it I'll do it but that was probably the worst bit the best bit was actually yeah working on it with my illustrator friend Marty Davies might I say she's very retiring very introverted as am I normally but yeah she's she's fabulous and that was fun that was fun we just laugh a lot all the time anyway and it was great it was great doing it some of the funny some of the mistakes we made it was so obvious we're just so you know we almost sent it off with this massively obvious mistake in it and and I just couldn't believe it when I found it and I said to her good grief you know we almost sent it off with this giant mistake and she just said to me oh you've got to get out more because <laughs> I was pouring over every day you know yeah how, how yeah. long was that the was process well it took a little while because if you condense it down into actual when we were working on it it didn't take that long it was probably couple of months because I already had the story written she had to do the illustrations that took a while so that maybe that was three months because we both work so we can only do it in dribs and drabs I would say you know with my little period of funk in the middle where I decided to give up and not do it at all which was probably three weeks as well so I mean if you were just working steadily away probably three to four months that's great from oh. go to woe but it was it was great I really enjoyed it and yeah you do it, it is a bit addictive you know you do start to think oh I could do this again but I could do and you know you could do it better and faster it's like the second child yeah for people who (laughs) have had children first child is very stressful and am I doing this right what am I doing I don't know what I'm doing why am I doing this and then the second child's just like ah they'll be fine yeah yeah no that's that's exactly (laughs) it they're eating dirt it won't kill them they'll be all right (laughs) yeah yeah and then the third one raises itself I've heard (laughs) yeah I've heard that but I never went that far (laughs) no me neither (laughs) thankfully yeah well tell us about the book tell us about the the series it's about a little girl who really loves hats she has a hat collection she has 49 hats in her collection and when I was thinking about the character of Avery I was trying to think about something that made her quirky and special and I thought I remembered when my daughter my oldest daughter was little and she used to wear a it was like a 1940s sort of cloche hat and she became this other character and we had to call her Madame Sari and (laughs) she was just this other person and I thought oh hats are hats are great and I did a bit of research into them and they're 
actually really interesting how wearing something, in this case a hat, actually changes our outlook and, and people who are anxious um, can actually put a hat on and feel that they can go outside and, and feel more secure. Um, people have lucky hats. People, they've done research where they do different testing on people wearing different hats and there are certain hats apparently that make you go really well in testing and there are certain hats that make you go not so well in testing figure that one out I don't know and I mean they're just a great way of expressing how we're feeling and a a really creative way of just expressing our personality so I thought well hats would be great would be great for Avery and then it was a matter of working out how weaving the hats into her problem solving process would carry us through the story so in the first one how does a hat save the day we have a few different things she's she's a bit feisty so she likes to to take charge of the situation and we have a bit of activism showing up in a community garden where the the girls her Avery and her best friend Olivia decide to stage a sit-in to save the scarecrow from being pulled down and dismantled and then she has to do some problem solving and figure out what it is about the scarecrow that's making the birds not pay attention to him and there might be a hat involved in the solution there somewhere I suppose but I yeah. can't give too much away yeah. that's a spoiler isn't it yeah oh that sounds fantastic yeah. no I get the hat thing and also like in writing you know the analogy you put your a different hat on yeah. to write so it's that whole thing of you know hat and focus you're somebody else you're you are like yeah. someone different to you so no that's that's great yeah, yeah. do I have on today which person am yeah. I today what job am I uh, yeah that's right exactly oh, that's yeah. wonderful so you know what what does the future hold for Ellie Royce like with your writing and your books are you gonna are you still publishing traditionally or are you gonna keep going with the uh, independent publishing and sky's the limit <laughs> Yeah, well, I will absolutely, I'm turning 60 next year and I will absolutely pursue every every avenue, you know, to tell as many stories as I can. I'll totally still submit work to traditional publishers and be very happy and grateful to work with them for as long as possible, as long as they want me to. And I'll probably also keep doing some other stories as well in the um, independent publishing because I love it now and... Yeah, there's a lot of stories that need to be told before I'm done. So, yeah, I'll just keep going. Keep going until people say, no, we don't want to see them anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, that's amazing. So where can our listeners find your wonderful stories and you on and offline? Well, my website is www.weareallmadeofstories.com. People could just sort of type Ellie Royce into their browser and usually it'll come up. I'm on Instagram as Ellie Royce Kidlit Author and also we're all made of stories and Facebook as Ellie Royce author so they can find me on Facebook as well so yeah I would love them to um say hi yeah oh well thank you so much Ellie that was just absolutely lovely it's so good to hear about your experience and I know that that will connect with others as well so thank you fantastic thank you very much for having me So there you have it folks, some honest, happy hybrid authorship tips and tales from the very talented Michelle Ellie Royce, whose junior fiction series Avery's Hattastic Adventures, illustrated by Marty Davies, is out now. So go get your kids a copy or yourself and just enjoy because it's just a delight. Next time on the Hybrid Author Podcast, we have award-winning indie-published children's author Christy Nita Brown, who's going to deep dive into how to self-publish a junior fiction novel. Sticking with this topic for a little bit. (laughs) 
So that's it from me. I hope you have a productive week on your author adventure. It's bye for now. That's the end for now, authors. I hope you are further forward in your author adventure after listening, and I hope you'll listen next time. Remember to head on over to the Hybrid Author website at www.hybridauthor.com.au to get your free author pass. It's bye for now.